Welcome to the Long COVID podcast with me, Jackie Baxter. I am really excited to bring you today's episode. Please do check out the links in the show notes where you can find the podcast website, social media and support group, as well as a link to buy me a coffee if you are able. You should not rely on any medical information contained in this podcast and related materials in making medical health related or other decisions. Please do consult a doctor or other health professional. I love to hear from you. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or just want to say hey, then please do get in touch. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So here we go. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Long COVID podcast. I am super excited to be joined tonight by Lisa, Gina and Hannah from the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Um, It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, So um, this is going to be absolutely wild. So a very warm welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Going to be well fun. So um, maybe just to start with, would you mind just each giving a sort of very brief introduction to who you are, if you don't mind. Sure. I'll start us off. So I'm Lisa McCorkle. I'm one of the co-founders and co-leads of Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Um, On the call today with us is Gina and Hannah, who will introduce themselves, and then one of our other co-leads, Hannah Way, couldn't make it today. Um, So background on me is that my professional background is in public policy, and we all got sick in March of 2020 and started Patient-Led Research Collaborative in April of 2020. Um, So we can maybe talk a little bit more about that later, but um, I'm based in Oakland, California, and very happy to be here. Um, I can go next. I am Gina Hudsop, and I am based in Washington, D.C., I'm also a co-founder and a co-lead, got sick. We all got sick around the same time. My background is in technology research, uh, leveraging, you know, participatory and human-centered design methods, and uh, um, also, you know, researching and designing uh, technology. Also, like now, kind of been very heavily involved in research of long COVID. And I am uh, maybe like 80 percent, 90 percent. It depends. It's 70% better uh, back to where I used to be pre, pre-COVID, but I still take a lot of medications to manage my symptoms. And so I'm still dealing with a lot of, um, you know, just long COVID stuff. And I'm Hannah Davis. I'm another one of the co-founders and co-leads of PLRC. Um, before I got sick, I was working in machine learning, doing a lot of um, projects around generative models for art and music and um, also pedagogical tools for identifying bias in machine learning data sets. Um, also got sick in the first wave, also have a pretty bad kind of cognitive and, um, you know, got the, the clotting markers and MECFS and dysautonomia and um, yeah, still, still not, not better. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, it's, uh, it's so amazing to to have you all on the call together as well. This is uh this is really lovely. Um, so yeah, I mean, you mentioned that patient-led research collaborative kicked off. You said April twenty twenty, I think. So 
I would love to hear a little bit more about that and how that all started and what brought you together as well from all your sort of different backgrounds, but sort of complementary skills almost, if that's the right word. And we all found each other in body politic, which was a support group for long COVID. You know, we saw an op-ed by Fiona Lowenstein talking about recoveries. And um, I think I can speak for me, all of us, we were all felt so un- alone after we saw that and, and automatically joined the, the support group. And, uh, you know, we saw the opportunity of, of folks talking about their illness and the length of the illness and the symptoms. And it d- definitely was like new information that we had not seen outside of what we were experiencing. So, you know, um, a few of us decided to, to kind of do a research spin on like research ourselves, given that we were all together and, and put, put a survey survey out. And, uh, you know, we put the survey out and that was basically how people kind of started, you know, other folks, different people started wanting to contribute and be like, here, this is an opportunity for us to like put the data out there. And that's how we, we all found each other, we, you know, is the need to like lend our skills and, and, and do the work and put the information out there. And we continued ever since then. And people have come and gone, you know, from the group. But there's a core set of people, especially the leads, that kind of formulated at the beginning. And, um, you know, some of the leads left and, and haven't been as, as involved. And some of the people, a lot of people left and left the group. But we're currently like a, a group of how many now? Um, 50. 50. Yeah. And, and the leads um, are four of us uh, with more people potentially joining the leads as well. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um... I mean, something that I've noticed myself and from speaking to lots of other people is this um, sort of sense of of coming together to do something, whether it's, you know, people have come together to do advocacy work and people have come together to do different sorts of research and all sorts of other things. And I think, you know, long COVID, and I think this probably goes for all sorts of other chronic conditions as well is such a like isolating experience and it's it's pretty horrible it's pretty scary it's but you know through this experience we have been able to kind of yeah make connections that maybe we wouldn't have done otherwise you know we were just saying before we started recording that like I would never have met you guys if it wasn't for this but yeah I just think what's what's so cool is that this has brought you guys together sort of out of necessity but like that you have just really taken it and run with it in such a cool way. Yeah, I think um, that's one of the like most beautiful things I'd say out of PLRC, just from my own like personal perspective is the relationships I've formed through it. I mean, Gina and Hannah and Hannah are some of my best friends and like I had no idea who they were three and a half years ago. It it also is, I think, speaks to our organization's values as well. Like we, um, we're all sick people, whether it's with long COVID or an associated condition like MECFS or POTS. And so we all inherently have this understanding of what, what each other's going through on a day-to-day basis, even if our symptoms are different, you know, just like knowing that we're all dealing with some type of illness and I don't know I I think it just really helps bring us closer together and have a deeper understanding of each other and so it's this both this like really great 
workplace, but also kind of a support group in and of itself. Um, and just, you know, bringing together people who have similar experiences that, yeah, I would have never met otherwise. Um, and I think it's really great, like how different our backgrounds are that, you know, we come together to make this really powerful team because of those multidisciplinary backgrounds. But, you know, in my little policy world, like I probably wouldn't have interacted with Hannah's AI and music background. And it's just so cool that I get to, you know, learn from everyone else and their backgrounds and we get to create research that's just, I think really just stronger because of all of our different backgrounds. Yeah. I was just going to add that. I think that we we've been lucky in that regard, just because it made the process of like becoming disabled a lot easier for us to just automatically have that sense of acceptance and acceptance in a situation where we were working, um, you know, we were, we were like really contributing to the community. And yeah, for me, I think like I had really, really, and still do had really bad brain stuff, but did really early on. And I just remember like them all constantly telling me like, oh, it was fine. And like, like, you know, I was still helpful. And I think our, our values are kind of health first and that has remained true. Um, and a lot of the kind of the policies we've put into place, like intentional redundancy and, um, you know, always taking time off or skipping meetings if you can't go. And those kind of things have really contributed to our success and, and longevity as well. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful thing as well. Um, and there's something else that I've noticed in certain certain people, certain circumstances where somebody who, for example, was a doctor and then they got ill and suddenly any knowledge or skills that they had previously is suddenly, you know, just completely, you know, swept under the carpet by other people. So rather than seeing them as a patient who is also a doctor and has some knowledge of whatever their doctoring is in, um, you know, it's, it's really allowing that person to be, well, actually you can be both, you can be both working or participating in the sort of well I'm a patient but actually because I'm a patient that actually makes me a better whatever else I am because I have a deeper understanding of what these people are actually going through because you've been there I think that probably works here as well yeah absolutely so I'd love to talk maybe a bit more I mean you mentioned that the whole organization kind of kicked off with the survey and um, I get the impression that that was kind of like a launch pad for sort of all sorts of other things. So maybe it would be cool to talk about kind of like the evolution of it. You know, where did it kind of go from there? I mean, we always say that we did the first survey to get answers for ourselves. Um, when we joined Body Politic in April 2020, there were already just like thousands of people with the, you know, kind of exact same symptoms, fatigue, the brain fog, the um, the post-exertional malaise, the cardiovascular stuff. And at the time it really, like the narrative was two weeks, respiratory focused, most people are gonna be fine. So we, we were really trying to get answers for ourselves, but as it became more and more clear that 
this phenomenon was happening, you know, worldwide, having that data really early on helped communicate the narrative away from just anecdotes and more in a data focused way. And I really, truly saw that helping kind of let us talk to the WHO and the CDC and the NIH um, and other major organizations worldwide um, much earlier on than it would have otherwise. But also at the same time, it was gray literature, which means it wasn't like a formally published paper. And a lot of the organization, you know, we had people reaching out to us constantly after Ed Young's piece, which included our survey. And a lot of sometimes what we heard back was, you know, like, we'd like to be able to cite this. Is this, can you do like something more formal? And we, we almost instantly started working on our second survey in June 2020. And it was much more detailed. It included many more symptoms. It really tried to include all the symptoms that weren't being talked about, like I mentioned earlier. And we ended up including 200 symptoms that we'd collected from the community. And uh, also kind of a timeline of the first seven months of the illness, um, which remains to date one of the the most cited, like earliest um, long COVID papers. And we put that out at the end of 2020. And I think from there, we we ended up just not only focusing on kind of like patient prioritized research, but also I think we just really gained the trust of both the patient and the researcher community and and general health community, too. So we were ended up, um, you know, being able to do more collaborations. You know, we were last year given uh, $6 million, which we put $5 million of into kind of biomedical grants for researchers who can really look at like the pathophysiology of this. We recently did a, a review paper on long COVID, which I think is number 70 of like 24 million papers, just was downloaded over a million times since January. And that I think just shows the kind of um, impact we've been able to have even on just like medical education and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're, you know, the, the funding that we got from the 6 million, that kind of spirit, uh, like a bunch of projects that we had started and uh, we put out, including the fund uh, that Hannah talked about, uh, we're wrapping up some of the projects that we had, you know, started out with them, like the reinfections project, the uh, project on LMIC, we, we did the hypothesis uh, publications and, and we're doing phenotyping one. So those are starting to wrap up. And so we're at the stage now. And we, and, you know, I think one of the things we're also doing is along with like the research, there's a big advocacy uh, effort going on in our group and leveraging data to do advocacy. So that has been happening, I think, from the beginning. And then there's been like significant events like, you know, Lisa testifying in, at Congress and other big ones that we've done throughout. Um, another one of our big accomplishments kind of came out of just like the experience of being a patient researcher and being like consulting on a lot of research studies. And we realized just how often kind of what you had been talking about, you know, a lot of times if patients are involved in research, it's a tokenizing role. Um, it's kind of just to, you know, say that researchers talk to a patient and they can check a box. Um, and so we really wanted to 
try to establish a new baseline of what's considered acceptable patient engagement. And so um, alongside the Council of Medical Specialty Societies, we created scorecards that help um, people evaluate both, you know, researchers, how they can evaluate whether their research is um, involves meaningful engagement of patients. Patient groups can evaluate researchers, decide if they want to get involved in a project, um, kind of based off of how they're scoring on these scorecards. And that was really informed by our own experience, as well as um, doing focus groups and interviews with relevant stakeholders. Um, so I think those scorecards also were a big piece of our work the last three years. And um, it's not even, you know, it wasn't just like long COVID focused. It really is aimed at getting to all disease groups. And I think is an important piece of our kind of patient-led nature and just like really trying to make the norm of medical research being you have to include patients and this is what including patients means. Yeah, I mean, like the name is literally patient-led, right? Um, you know, and it's it's not, um, as you say, it's not tokenistic of, you know, well, we'll speak to a patient and we'll probably won't really listen to them, but at least we can, you know, say that we, you know, did our quote unquote patient engagement. Um, you know, it's it's actually, it's kind of, it's almost flipped it, isn't it? That it's actually, it's, you know, it's literally led by patients but patients who also have other skills. I don't know, I wonder if, um, I don't like the word like legitimacy because like someone who's sick shouldn't need to have to justify themselves. But it's almost like that, um, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned the early study that you did with the, the survey and, you know, it was almost like having that data gave sort of validation gave legitimacy to like the condition in itself maybe even um I mean like thinking back to my early experiences it sounds like I got ill at basically the same time as all of you guys and um you know I spent months and months kind of thinking I have no idea what this is like you know I must be the only person and isn't this awful but you know I'm sure if I keep pushing through then it will go away but you were straight on that like you know April 2020 like you know it had been around well it'd been around for a lot longer before that actually hadn't it but like you know in terms of like lockdowns and stuff it had only really been around for about a month or so by then right yeah I think that was the huge benefit of us all reading that op-ed by Fiona Lowenstein it just like that changed the trajectory of all of our lives and joining the support group, the body politic um, COVID-19 support group was just automatically just joining that was validation of our experiences, just realizing that we're not alone. Um, and then we started hearing from people with MECFS and people who have been sick for decades. And then they were like, don't push yourself, you know, you got to learn to pace. And that's an adjustment, learning to pace. I think everyone is still kind of trying to learn to pace even three years in. But yeah, it's a, it's a very isolating experience. And so being able to join something so early on was huge. And then we just realized, like, there's not any researchers that we know of that are focusing on this. Like, no one's really paying attention to what's going on. But we see it as a huge issue because there are thousands of people in the support group so we need to study it and like 
we just got to take it into our own hands. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think because a lot of us, and I'm sure you too, weren't getting any answers from anybody that we considered like official or like you'd go to your medical provider and, and, and physician and they would just like, for the most part, gaslight you, you know, and say, oh, there's nothing, you're young, you're healthy, you're fine, go home when you're not feeling fine. And, and so it was super validating to find others. I mean, I, I got sick with folks who at the same time as me, they got better. And I'm, you know, I, I was like, why, why am I not getting better and they're better? And so finding others, and, you know, that was like just eye-opening, empowering, comforting. And so I think putting it together in a way that we can look at it even more objectively, you know, with, with the, like a data lens, um, I think was was something that felt like the next step, right? Um, because we didn't know, like, I think at that point, like, it wasn't clear who else had gotten together, you know, as, as like, sick people finding each other, like, were we the only group that is like finding each other, you know, so I'm, I'm sure there were others, and probably, you know, there were, but at that time, it just felt like a very unique experience. We'll be right back. I'm interrupting myself for a second to tell you about Long Covid Breathing. The fabulous Vicky Jones and I have teamed up to bring you Long Covid Breathing. We are both passionate about sharing our expertise and experience of the breath and how incredibly helpful that can be with Long Covid. We've worked together to develop a course that is specifically tailored to those with Long Covid. It's a six-week course with 12 sessions, all delivered online. The community feel and learning that we're all sharing is such a joy. To find out more information and to sign up for our courses, workshops and other shorter sessions, please check out the link below, longcovidbreathing.com or email longcovidbreathing at gmail.com to start your breathing journey with us. And I think body politic in particular set us up for success in a few ways. Like first it was a Slack group. And so it wasn't these Facebook groups, which like the threads were overwhelming and they kept like repeating themselves. Um, like we found ourselves or we found our group specifically in a channel called Data Nerds. And so it, it self-selected, right, for people whose coping strategy was learning as much as possible. And that's definitely true of most people in PLRC, um, like action and, and really trying to get information. And then the other thing they did that was just so good and very different from most of the other groups was they were from the beginning focused on disability justice. Um, so focusing on people with ME and HIV AIDS who had come before us, um, so much of the advocacy that's been done in those spaces is like entirely relevant um, for our situation too, especially a lot of what we learned from kind of the minimization strategies of um, viral onset illnesses um, does, it comes from basically the same playbook, right? So um, we had kind of expectations of what we would start seeing from people who were going to minimize us. We could use data to counteract that. So like one of the papers we put out, um, or, or one of the, those narratives is like, oh, the support groups are fueling this, you know, health anxiety in patients. And actually these patients just have bad coping strategies. Um, so we were actually able to show um, through data that A, people who join support groups don't have health anxiety or depression or mental health outcomes any different than those who don't. Um, and that long COVID patients actually have good coping strategies. 
Um, and that when you compare long COVID patients' coping strategies to people without long COVID, there are some adaptive strategies that are even higher in long COVID patients. So now, like, when people say that, like, we have, like, a paper to put out against it. And also just understanding, I think, the values of disability justice have um, really shaped the way that we are trying to be as an organization and interdependent with each other and with other communities that have a lot more knowledge than we do. Yeah, I mean, it sort of seems logical when you think about it, that people with long COVID or chronic illness in general, that they have good coping strategies, because that's kind of born out of like desperation, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's almost like that. I'm sure there's a quote that's escaping my, uh, my brain, but you know, about not knowing what you can do until you're put in a position where you have to and I think in some ways that's kind of relevant here um, because you know you you don't know how bad things can be um, and I guess this comes into the whole gaslighting or certainly lack of understanding is that people who haven't experienced something like this cannot understand some of them will be empathetic some of them will you know be helpful some of them will at least want to be helpful um but nobody i don't think can truly understand having not had some personal experience of it and i think that's why having the patient involvement in research in in you know whatever is is so important and coming at this from a non-medic non-research background it's always seemed to me that like it should be a no-brainer that you have patients involved in research in a meaningful way but I mean it's, it's been really interesting kind of learning more about this as I've spoken to more people and you know how it's like oh well you know yeah you know patients involved in research that's actually a new thing and we're not really sure how we think about it and you know it's a it doesn't seem like a good idea because patients what do they know <laughs> it's like Patients know quite a lot, actually, as it turns out, um, and they're invested in a way that possibly non-patients wouldn't be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I when I was at one of the conferences this past couple of weeks, somebody from the rare disease community came up to me and was like, you know, um, th this patient-led research thing, I mean, that's the only thing that happens in our communities because there are illnesses that are you know, underfunded, misunderstood, and, uh, you know, they've been ignored for so long. And so they've had to do this patient-led research and they do it, they've been doing it pretty well. It's just that they're just underfunded and, you know, and not given attention. They're the only ones that are being able to advance, you know, the, their knowledge and their illness. And, and so they've been, they've actually been doing it pretty well. It's just that they haven't been getting the attention and the funding. Long COVID, I think it's kind of in a unique situation is where we started out, I would say, as like, not many people, you know, have it. And now it's, it's not, I, I wouldn't call it a rare illness, right? Long COVID. And so we started out as, you know, this new illness. And so we did kind of put the attention out there on this illness and, you know, did this patient-led research because of the need of it. But then like, you know, the attention came on it because it was a realization, hey, this is hitting more than just these few pockets of people, right? Yeah. And it, in, a, in a way it highlighted how, uh, great patient-led research can be because, you know, an illness that is hard to understand and, you know, it's episodic a little bit. Some of the illness is episodic, you know, and it's not, doesn't follow like your linear, like an illness that is, you know, easily kind of 
identified or the, the basic test can show you what's wrong. We like we're not the first to do it, right? The you know the patient led and and that. But I think because the the unique thing with the long COVID community and, and what we did with PLRC is we kind of led with the patient led, and then because it's not a rare illness, it did get some attention outside of and became a little bit more mainstream. I would say you know. Yeah, I think like Gina said, like it has been done many many times before. I think it's just not as well accepted within the medical community. And, you know, even in like medical schools, it's not like there are courses on how to engage patients in your research or, and providers aren't even taught a lot about like what our conditions are. But I think we need to have that kind of paradigm shift. And it is there's evidence for it. Like we have examples of it, especially in HIV AIDS in the nineties and two thousands. Like that is really where a lot of patient engagement and research happened. And that was because the community demanded a seat at the table and demanded a meaningful seat. But there's, you know, countless other examples of patients themselves doing research, even like not in partnership with other researchers, finding some huge, advancement in their disease. You know, I I think it's frustrating that it's taken a while for the medical community and biomedical research to really see that as a necessary aspect of their research and not as like one-off kind of like miracles that a patient could do something because it really is like, we're finding solutions so much faster when patients are involved. And we see this in other areas. So like, you know, I think coming from the policy world, it wasn't as like, it it felt like a natural thing for patients to be involved in this type of thing, because there's been more of a movement and more acceptance in the policy world of people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. That's a quote from Ayanna Presley. Like, there's more acceptance of the people who are most impacted by policies who are, you know, most marginalized, they should be the ones that are figuring out policy solutions. And so it, it felt like natural for me to do this and was just like, why is the the biomedical community kind of like so resistant to this idea? Um, You know, we're not saying that we can do everything like I'm not in the lab doing basic science, we need basic scientists, but we can help guide based off of the experience like it just, you know, designing a study that maybe assumes that a condition is going to be the same, um, no matter what time of day, no matter what time of month, if you're menstruating is you know, that's kind of how someone who's not experiencing an illness and an episodic illness would maybe design a study, but having that patient input being like, actually, time of day really matters for my symptoms. Actually, you know, my symptoms are heavily exacerbated when I'm on my period. Like those are things that really only people with lived experience can provide. And so it's just so important to have that partnership and view both types of kind of skills and both experiences as equally valuable. And I think that's related to not only just like the symptoms, but with within COVID, like the um, like societal obstacles that we've faced 
Um, like one of the things we constantly talk about is that like the first waivers didn't have access to PCR tests and you know that like a third of people don't make antibodies but yet people who are not talking to patients often require PCR test or a positive antibody test when 80% of people who lose antibodies are are women and and this illness primarily impacts women and so um i think there are like some covid specific things that we've been able to help shift the narratives on as well yeah i mean that's something that i've seen in so many research studies that i've spoken to is oh well in order to participate you need a positive um covid test and i'm thinking well by saying that you're basically excluding like what 80 percent of first waivers and they're the people that have the longest amount of data to give which just seems like so frustrating yeah in the us the statistic is only three percent of first waivers got documentation and throughout the the height of testing like through september 2021 the cdc says only 25 percent of COVID cases have documentation due to either lack of testing or or inaccurate testing. And no one, like, I would love to design like a, a general population-wide update information about COVID and that would be kind of the top of the list because there's so much data out there about all these things that we're struggling with and, and none of that data is getting communicated. And I think that's a lot of the kind of work we do too is like around communications, but it's just only because of the failure of, of public health organizations to to do that for us. Yeah. And I guess that's, you know, why what you guys are doing is important, you know, that this does get communicated, but also like how frustrating is it that like people who are sick are having to do it yourselves? Yeah. And, and I think that's like a two ways. It's like, it's empowering in a way, you know, to like, do things because you feel like it needs to happen but yeah it's also frustrating because because you're like if I don't do it is nobody gonna do it and like what's gonna happen to us uh and it's kind of scary you know it, it feels uh and and it makes you realize how messed up our healthcare system and, and just the way research is done or, or investigated it makes you wonder you know what else is being uh, you know not taken care of and how many other people are like being ignored with their illnesses and, and situations and, and, and that sort of thing, which, but yeah, it, it is, uh, I, I feel like it's both where you're like empowered and, but then you're also, yeah, it's, it's like feeling both feelings at the same time. I sometimes joke that the, the worst part of realizing that we can have an impact on the world is the fact that we can have an impact on the world. And so it just feels like everything, we can affect everything so we should but then it's just like this tremendous burden <laughs> um and you know i don't think any of us are good at saying like oh no we're not going to do this thing because we know it will it will tangibly help people and you know continues to and does yeah. and also now that it's politicized like to me i feel like it's so much harder like this year than it was in the first year because there's just so, so, so much less support, like social support, your personal support. Yeah. And it's mind boggling because there's more people who have it. And so it, there's less attention and, and, you know, it feels like less worry about it and less like attention on it. But then 
you know that the numbers are, you know, are not low. And then there's also like, people don't even know what they're going through is potentially long COVID or related to COVID because of the, the messaging with us, because it happened in such an isolated manner, we were able to like tie it directly to it. Whereas so many other people are, you know, being diagnosed with POTS or with unknown illnesses and it's unclear why. And so that is also another thing that I feel like we're trying to grapple with as an organization. How do we tackle those things? It's, it's, um, it's really tricky. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting how the, yeah, the sort of, I guess the narrative has changed, doesn't it? You know, and it does seem very much now how everybody just wants to pretend that the last three and a half years hasn't happened. And, you know, I can understand that, you know, it's been traumatic for everybody um, on different levels and in different ways. But, you know, it did happen. And if we don't learn from history, then that seems really unwise. And it seems like this really sort of strange paradox kind of going on at the moment where you've got more and more people falling unwell and, oh yeah, I had this really awful cold. And actually, you know, three months later, I'm still not feeling that good. And you're like, yeah, but you can't say it because nobody wants to talk about it anymore. Yeah, that has been like really difficult to witness, especially when you know that there are things you can do to maybe minimize your chances of getting long COVID, like the rest, like not being able to tell people like, oh, just take it easy for the next two months. It's, yeah, it's just it's just terrible to watch the people around us like get this and, um, you know, then understand and then realize it and then ask for help, et cetera. But yeah, and it's been helpful to have folks who um, have joined PLRC who are kind of those folks as well, you know, that have gone through that where they were like, oh yeah, it was in the back of our head. But then I realized it was, I saw you all talk about it, but didn't, you know, think it would happen to me or whatever. And so just having those perspectives as well kind of is helpful for us to understand, you know, how this is going to be like a continued, but maybe changing, um, you know, way of looking at how to, I, I don't know, talk about it in the public or communicate and things like that. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm just jumping in for a second to see if you're enjoying this episode. If you're finding it useful, maybe you would consider sharing it somewhere, a friend, a group, or even on your Twitter feed. If everyone was able to share just once, we'd be able to get this information out to even more people who really, really need it. So please consider sharing somewhere if you possibly can. I hope you enjoy the episode and thank you so much. And I think if we had had either vaccination or prior infection had like been meaningful protection, the conversation would be different. The outlook would be different. But I think especially this year, at least like from what I see, the majority of people who get long COVID now were fully vaccinated, did have usually one or even two prior infections, then got it on the third time or fourth time or whatever. And because that's happening, this is a problem that is only going to increase and we need public awareness about that and we need like clinical trials and treatments like curative treatments as soon as possible yeah i think um as well i mean you know obviously the conversation here is very much around covid and long covid but i think you know we will kind of you know acknowledge tonight that this post-viral conditions in general 
are not a new thing and they've been going on for a long time and you know this whole experience for me has been very eye-opening in a lot of ways um to something that i like i knew about it but i actually really didn't know about it as it turns out or certainly not on any meaningful level and um you know you kind of thinking like to the future you know yes we're talking about mecfs from the past from any number of different viruses and we're now talking about long covid as a result of a covid infection but you know going forward things like ebv still around mono still around is still going to be causing its own cases of post viral something and you know anything else that happens in the future and it just it seems to me like a real opportunity you know it's terrible that these things have been ignored for so long but now we've got so many people with long covid kind of adding their voices to the pile kind of thing it seems yeah it seems like an opportunity to kind of really try and do something um about this kind of collection of illnesses that has sort of been swept under the carpet for so long yeah and i think that's something that bothers us all a lot because they're I think it's a little different in the UK, but in the US, there's there's so much research on these conditions like myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's a similar kind of thing where that research has just not been communicated, but so many of the patterns are the same. Like for a while, one of the major theories was clotting, that MECFS was clotting um, after this pair of doctors realized that heparin being administered to women who had had some kind of I can't remember, so a condition in pregnancy like improved their MECFS symptoms by a lot. Um, and there's T-cell exhaustion and there's the cerebral blood flow and hypometabolism and reactivated viruses. And um, there's just so much we, like if we were starting from there and then building on it and seeing what COVID does specifically, et cetera, rather than starting with oh, COVID's a respiratory virus, which is what we saw a lot, you know, people just assuming a respiratory hypothesis when it's clearly a, a, a multi-systemic disease, I think we would be a lot further along. And the, the researchers who do do that um, have much better work. They put out much better work and you, you can see they're, they're just much closer to putting out, you know, something that, that looks closer to a, a cure or a unifying theory. Yeah, and I think like moving forward, there's a lot of efforts within patient advocacy groups to bring awareness to all infection-associated chronic conditions together. Um, And that benefits us in so many ways. It benefits us from a provider um, education perspective. If providers are aware that basically any pathogen can cause long-term effects, um, that's what we see with chronic Lyme. That's what we see with MECFS, with POTS, long COVID. Then they'll be able to treat patients better. But that type of education just has never really occurred in a, at a meaningful level. And most of these patients have just been dismissed. It also helps us from a research perspective, being able to come to answers faster if we look at um, what Hannah was saying, like looking at these conditions, seeing the similarities, doing cross illness research, um, so doing, you know, basically the same study, but just different cohorts based off of what the inciting infection was. 
um, that's going to get us to answers so much faster and get us to treatments faster. Um, so I think, you know, looking at all of these conditions from that perspective and joining forces, um, I think is really going to help improve our understanding and just be able to get more support and resources to the patients that have these conditions and hopefully bring more, um, you know, prevention and be able to tackle the issue earlier on in people's illnesses. So yeah, it's just, it's such a huge thing. If we had had that earlier, we'd be in a much different place now, but at least now we need to use this opportunity to um, push that framing forward. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking just as you were speaking there, just on the most basic of levels of education, you know, this idea that if you're ill, oh, well, you know, you still need to go to work, you still need to do this, you still need to do all of these things. Um, oh, it's just a cold, oh, it's just a, you know, it's just a whatever. And you're thinking, well, actually, you know, if you're ill, it's not just an anything, even if it is quote unquote, just a cold, you know, actually, you should still be able to allow yourself to have a day off because you're feeling like crap. Like, that's, that should should just be a thing that people do. And yet, it's not and it never was for me, you know, I would always just keep on going because that was what was expected of you. Well, that's certainly what I thought anyway. And it's amazing how your perspective on that can change. I think certainly for me. Um, so um, I guess it would be cool if you're able to share, um, what is going forward for you guys? Um, have you got new exciting projects in the sort of in the pipeline that you're able to talk about a little bit? And we're at the phase where, um, you know, we're wrapping up a lot of the projects that we had started with that, that big amount of funding. And so, um, you know, I think we'll have some, you know, new papers or new things to share in the, you know, in the coming few months. Uh, we actually just got uh, one of our publications on return to work, which I'm really excited about. Um, that one, I think, is going to be really interesting. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll have a lot more papers and, and content coming out that's going to keep us busy for the next few months and wrapping up all the the internal projects that we're having or we're funded um and in terms of what's next i mean i think we're continuing to like you know try to do the work and push forward on clinical trials and anything else uh that you know will benefit the, the, the long COVID community community whether it's treatments whether it's biomarkers whether it's medications that are going to help with our symptoms, but like being prescribed regularly by, you know, medical providers. Um, I was just going to say, I mean, I'm excited. To, this is like technically already stuff we already did was funding our 10 studies through our patient-led research fund. But, you know, over the next year, we'll start seeing results from those. And so I'm really excited to see that. And also excited to see the, um, you know, we'll put out results from our reinfection survey. Um, so that'll be coming up soon. We also, I mean, I just mentioned kind of that patient advocacy groups are coming together. Uh, but so we're trying to help push forward a coalition of groups that are under the infection associated chronic condition umbrella. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited for that too, because I do think that that's, um, really needed. So um, yeah, but ultimately, you know, we're hoping to both scale as an organization, try to do more and also stay sustainable. And so we're working on that now. Yeah, I would echo mostly what's already been said, but 
we've seen a couple of the outputs of our research fund, including amyloid deposits and skeletal muscle tissue during PEM and a new clinical trial um, looking at viral persistence. And I think one of the things we're, we're trying to do now, or we're really focusing on clinical trials in the next year and, and trying to raise money to do the research fund again with a focus on kind of trying to get a couple meaningful biomedical clinical trials um, up and running. We really just see the need for that pretty urgently. Yeah. I mean, like that must be so exciting to start to see you know, the results of all of, you know, you guys have put a load of work into this and, you know, all of the people doing the bits and pieces, they've all put all this work in and yeah, to sort of see that start to sort of come to fruition where, where you're actually able to go, oh my goodness, we have something like tangible, like that must be so cool. It's really exciting. I think it, it makes it worth it. Does it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, must be on certainly on some level, I would think. I mean, obviously, we're hoping for, you know, all of us to get better and, you know, to elevate the patient-led research community or patient-led research work and the, the other infectious associated illnesses, you know, that happens out of this pandemic. And if some of our work kind of helped with that, that would be amazing. You know, I'd be proud of that. I'd be happy. Um, but, you know, first and foremost, I hope all of us get better and, you know, and, and are able to like function at a pace that we're okay with, you know, and able to you know, thrive and sort beyond just surviving, which it feels like sometimes that's what we're doing. And I just want to give um, a shout out, I guess, to our team um, because we wouldn't be here without them um, and the patient community generally. Um, we source so many ideas and hypotheses from the patient community. So um, we just appreciate all of them. And I probably can't name all, you know, 50 people on this podcast right now from our organization, but um, just, you know, huge love and appreciation to, to our team. Yep. I second that. Yeah. It's a really amazing group of people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for um, giving up. I was going to say your evening. I don't think it is evening for you guys, but whatever time of day it is for you, um, giving up your time and your energy to um, come and chat with me. It's been so much fun. And um, yeah, thank you for all that you're doing, all that you have done and good luck with the future plans. Maybe you can come back and, and talk when you've got a, a load of results from all of your stuff. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to all of my guests and to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it or at least found it useful. The Long COVID podcast is entirely self-produced and self-funded. I'm doing all of this myself. If you're able to, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash pod to help me cover the costs of hosting the podcast. Please look out for the next episode of the Long COVID podcast. It's available on all the usual podcast hosting things and do get in touch 